from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. But Louis was like the turning point. I mean, you know, I, his, his allegation was the only one that made me, like, laugh. A few months ago, Dave Chappelle gave the world his take on the Me Too movement and the sexual misconduct committed by his fellow comedian, Louis C.K. It's terrible. I know it's terrible. I'm sorry, ladies. You're right. You are right. But at the same time, I mean, you know what I mean. I don't know. Jesus Christ, they took everything from Louis. I was like, I don't know, it might be disproportionate. I can't tell. I can't tell. This is like where it's hard to be a man. They took everything from Louis. It's hard to be a man. Really. But what really was surprising and ironic was the venue where Chappelle made that case. He was doing his bit at a small room at a comedy club in Los Angeles, a club that 40 years ago was set up to provide exactly the opposite perspective. Producer Daniel Guimet tells the story. Hey, Mom. What are you doing? So this is a scene from Polly Shore's old reality show, which was called Minding the Store. The comedy store is pretty much in shambles. And Leave it alone, Polly. I like it the way it is. Don't change anything. Mom, stop it. And I want to play this because Polly Shore's mom, the woman arguing with him on the phone, was once one of the most important people in American comedy. Don't you do anything unless you check with me first. All right, I got it. All right, all right. Unfortunately, there is very little audio of her out in the world. This is pretty much all I could find. And I never got a response from my interview requests, but I wanted you to hear something because back in the 70s, Mitzi Shore ran the comedy club that I think mattered most in Los Angeles, the Comedy Store. The Comedy Store was an old building and, you know, water got in the walls, rats got in the walls. Harris Pete did stand-up and odd jobs at the store in the 70s. So sometimes you had the rat smell, and sometimes you had the mildew smell, and sometimes you had the mixing of the two pungent odors. Despite the ambiance, the place was usually packed, and not just with audiences. Agents and managers and bookers were always there to scout out the amazing talent Mitzi was helping to develop. I have something for you, a very special thing. I'd like to begin by doing... I'd like to see Henry Winkler out here doing this shit. There was Robin Williams, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Jim Carrey, Gary Shandling, and some comedians who might have been introduced by Howie Mandel, like this. Our next guest is, is, a, is a, um, a, a, a woman. She's a woman. I know that because I've seen her tits. No, I, never, I didn't see her tits. They're not her tits. No, they are. I'm just kidding. Ladies and gentlemen, Judy Carter. I had to inevitably follow a guy who was doing a half-hour routine about women smelling like fish. Judy Carter used to get on stage at the store back in the late 70s, and she found that female comedians usually started at a disadvantage with audiences just by being female comedians. And I'll never forget being, like, getting on stage, and you watch the body posture of the audience before you go on, and it's like, you're a woman, and it's, um, and they all cross their legs and cross their arms across their chest as if they're going to be reprimanded. Like, oh, we're going to be punished for laughing at those nasty jokes. But Judy and others could only get that reaction if they got on stage at all. Here's writer and performer Meryl Marco. There was a number of women who were 
in there kicking, myself included. But there would be whole nights at the comedy store, the whole lineup, there'd be no women, not one. Mitzi, of course, was running a business, meaning she was putting on stage who the audiences would respond to best. The most popular female comics were performing a style of comedy that Judy and Meryl and other younger comics were moving away from. Last night I said to my husband, what's your favorite sexual position? He said, next door. It is You know, humor is the most aggressive medium there is. Comedian Robin Tyler. And the only way that women were allowed to be aggressive was to turn that on themselves. So you have comics like Joan Rivers talking about being ugly or overweight or whatever. Oh, that's why I I have no sex appeal, which kills me. The only way I can ever hear heavy breathing from my husband's side of the bed is when he's having an asthma attack. Oh, you don't know. I was not self-deprecating, which was a very new thing for the world of female comedians. Sandra Bernhard was doing something that the generation after Joan Rivers was doing more and more, turning their aggression outward. We have a charming young lady by the name of Sandra Bernhard. Sandra? Here she is roasting Richard Pryor in 1977. I have a little announcement to make. Immediately following the World Series, the reunion of Richard's ex-wives will be held in Dodger Stadium. (laughs) call Richard a racist? I can. You know, I was a product of the feminist movement. I was like, enough of this. You know, it's time for women to feel good about themselves as opposed to just stand-ups who are just, you know, playing these beaten women who are, you know, in, in loveless marriages. It's just what, it didn't speak to me. I was the new generation. And then we started to do pro-women's material. And so, of course, any nightclub, you know, the comedy story, you know, get the hell off, you bitches, you know, and stuff like that. This again is Robin Tyler. I remember one night, and this is true, it wasn't even a joke, a guy stood up and he screamed, are you a lesbian? And I said, are you the alternative? And that happened at the comedy store. Mitzi herself once claimed that in 1978, there were 30 male comics to every female comedian. So that year, seeing the numbers stacked against these women, seeing how they were treated on stage, Mitzi came up with a plan to help them. So Mitzi holds this meeting. Performer Alison Arngrim. And she invites all the women comics. And she gets up. How many is that? Oh, my God. It must have been 20 or 30 people. It was a good group. And to this group, Mitzi announces her plan. She would transform a back room at the store that was up a narrow flight of stairs into a space only for female performers. And then she says, but it's going to be a space for women, and it's so male-dominated. In the other rooms, it'll be better for you, and it will have this women to be focused on, so you'll be getting more time because this room will be all women. Yes, Mitzi sold it as a place where women could, like, be unbridled. And uninhibited. She said it would give women a chance to grow uh, with each other. Like, in her mind, it was like an all-woman's college. In the 1940s, when it was a mob-affiliated nightclub, the room featured belly dancers. So, in an ode to those female performers, Mitzi named her space The Belly Room. At first, I'm like, okay, that is the worst name. But it felt very womb-like. It felt very, there are, there's no other world outside of here but this room. Again, Judy Carter. It benefited us because it was a place of real experimentation. We would stage this mock fight, like, you know, we'd be angry at each other, and then we'd literally, like, wrestle with each other, throw each other down on the ground. 
I remember doing an ode to a clitoris. Oh, God, I have so much. I did stuff on Jesus being gay. You did stuff you could not have done that anywhere else. Say what he said. What the hell are you talking about, woman? So, Sandra, I read you would sing songs in there? Um, Yeah, The Friendship of Fools. Friendship of fools can be as sweet as wine. You came to me a stranger, bearing gifts that were so fine. And I accepted because I wanted... We all just, we just had the best time together. And we were supportive of one another. And that's how I remember it. Such a fool. Perhaps because of how out there the material could get, or just because it was all female comedians... The Belly Room didn't have the same VIP audience as downstairs. When The Tonight Show or whoever wanted to hire comedians, you'd go there and do your act, and there'd be agents in the audience and stuff, and you would launch a career from that. And so you'd do that night after night after night, hoping somebody would see you. And did that ever happen in The Belly Room? That never happened in The Belly Room. No, The Belly Room was a place where you were being placated. Actually, besides the lack of agents and bookers, there wasn't much of an audience at all. It was, it was a great place to go be anonymous, you know, if just being alone in your apartment wasn't enough for you. Often, the audience was just overflow from downstairs, people killing time until a table opened up for them in the main room. I remember distinctly performing something and doing a joke and looking down and six people got up to go to the original room and the whole room was back to empty again by the time I got to my punchline. Like, the tension of it is it seemed like, like the argument, like Meryl was saying, was like, well, it's this ghettoizing space. Totally. Marginalized or pushed off the side. People don't want to come see us. They don't fucking exile. Complete yeah. fucking exile. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we would sit on the staircase, and it was a constant conversation of separate is not equal. That seemed to be part of the intention for the room itself. Because Mitzi actually didn't think a lot of the female comics could work alongside the guys downstairs. I say that because in 1979, she told Mother Jones that they, quote, get psychologically blocked when they're working on the same level as a man. It was a loser place. It was was clear that the attitude was that women weren't as good as the people in the original room. To me, there are benefits from it because it was hidden away, because it was marginalized. I felt freedom there. But I could absolutely understand that other female comics, this was the only place that they could perform. And then Mitzi could go, well, you're getting gigs. What are you complaining about? It was, there was actually le- even less reason for you to go on the main stage because you could be on at the belly room. So you call in for times and go, you're on in the belly room on Tuesday and then Wednesday and Friday. And, and then what happened is as soon as that belly ro- room opened, wow. I was only in the belly room. And wow. so were a whole bunch of other people. Of course, there was another way to deal with this. A few comedians like Marsha Warfield just flat out refused to perform in the belly room. No. I mean, it just wasn't something I wanted to do. Why would I go up to the belly room? I just, you know, just it seemed like an insult to me. Marsha's principled stand was easier to make because she was the rare female comic who was actually making a living on the club circuit. She didn't need the belly room. I didn't see it as an opportunity. I saw it as segregating people and saying, you are not good enough to compete with everybody else. You need your own little space in the back where you can do your little girl thing. The belly room kept women on the margins of the comedy store, meaning it wasn't a place where you could test your material against mainstream audiences or even much of an audience at all. It wasn't a place to get discovered by agents and bookers like Robin Williams and David Letterman or, you know, Howie Mandel did. 
The only value it seemed to have was that you could find your voice there. I carved out my spot up there and just allowed myself to be fully who I was. You know, I mean, I was very into dressing really chicly. I would go and get like tuxedos at secondhand stores and wear them with high heels. And, you know, I was just like, I was from the whole the way I looked to the way everything I was doing, I was like fashioning somebody who had a very like unique look and point of view. A film career, her own one woman show, and even a record which will be released soon. As far as I'm concerned, this person embodies all that is chic and fabulous in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to Sandra Bernhardt. Sandra? Years after she left the belly room, Sandra Bernhard became famous. In 1983, she co-starred in Martin Scorsese's movie The King of Comedy, and she turned that platform into TV gigs and comedy specials for channels like HBO and Showtime. Now, please, just give me an old-fashioned, sweaty, big-titty bitch of rock and roll, okay? And she did it by using the persona she had honed in the belly room into something equal parts caustic and ironic, stand-up and cabaret, like in this tribute to the band Heart. Now, when these women wrote a lyric and sang a song, you know they had lived it, okay? I saw him again today. I had to turn my heart away. You better burn, 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 burn it to the wind. They wrote it, they sang it, they snorted it, they fucked it, they lived it, okay? These women created the road. There was no road before them. They did shit that would break these little bitches in half. Sometime in 1979, or maybe it was 1985, it depends on who you ask, the belly room changed. Men began performing there because female comics weren't enough of a draw. In 1993, Mitzi reflected on the belly room's first incarnation— She told the L.A. Times it wasn't open long enough to have real influence. And among the people that perform there, Judy Carter and Alison Arngrim, as talented as they are, have yet to become household names. Robin Tyler, a pioneer for gay comedy, has become more of an activist. And Meryl Marco's success came behind the scenes as the co-creator of Late Night with David Letterman. But the Belly Room short-lived experiment, as imperfect as it was, still means something to Sandra Bernhardt. Okay, so you're, like, developing your style in the belly room. Um, was there a night when you were there ever when you were just like, I think I got it? Yeah, yes. There were many nights that were revelations like that. As Paul Mooney would say, Bernhard, you have to shed your skin like a snake every time you get up on stage. And that's what I did. And, you know, I think that to be able to go back to that feeling and that memory is very inspiring because... You know, you go into this business with a dream, and when it's fulfilled, it's a big deal because not a lot of people make it. Daniel Gamet produced that story. Thanks to Jeff Scott and Argus Hamilton for their help. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 